Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Welcome back to the third installment of the series, Questions for Jesus. During Lent, we're looking at six questions Jesus asks. I'm told that Jesus asked 152 different questions in the Gospels. Asking questions was central to Jesus' life, teaching, and ministry. He used questions to engage people more deeply on what was going on inside of them, how God was with them in that moment, and also to help them take steps of growth in their lives and their faith. And so we're letting these questions of Jesus do the same for us, to help us grow into the best and truest versions of of who we are, and to help increase our understanding of how God wants to communicate with us and how he wants to have a conversation for that to be really real. Today we're faced with another powerful question that I think all of us will relate to, and that question is this. Why do you worry? Jesus asked the question, why do you worry? Now, the worry that we tend to face in this world is really such a first world plague, is it not? I mean, so you wake up 10 minutes late in the morning, anxiety starts to creep in. You go, what if I'm late? What if the traffic is bad and uh, worse than normal? What if the weather is bad? And, And by the time you get out of bed and walk past the mirror in the bathroom, you worry that your face has too many wrinkles and you worry that you're going to have a bad hair day. Then you run downstairs. Because you're in a hurry, you let your kids eat whatever they want. And so what that means is they eat a lot of sugar. And then you begin to wonder, does sugar really cause cancer? Does it really cause behavior and, uh, and brain problems? And so as the kids are headed out the door, you find one of the kids didn't do their multiplication table homework. And so what do you worry about? You worry about that they're not going to make it in life. So as your kids get on the bus, then you start to worry that they may fall in with the wrong crowd and then they'll be damaged for life. And then your mind goes to the point of what if they fall off the monkey bars and get hurt today? So when you arrive at home that evening after worrying about a lot of things at work, you decide to unwind by jumping on Facebook and there you get to read how everyone else's kids are just absolutely awesome and and you get to see the pictures of how they're getting such a healthy meal and it's not only healthy but it's a good looking meal as you're trying to figure out what box I'm going to take out of the freezer and throw in the microwave. So you feel like you worry like you're not, you're failing as a parent. As you hustle through the evening and then it gets to the point where it settles down, you sit down and all of a sudden you feel the pain in your knee. And you go, man, am I going to have to have a knee replacement surgery? Am I going to miss a bunch of work? How's that going to work financially for me? Who's going to get the kids to where they need to be while I'm recovering? And then you decide to go on WebMD, which is a really bad thing to do, right? And when and, and your self-diagnosis by the time you're done with that says that you not only just have a bad knee, but you have bone cancer, so you've got less than three months to live. So you, you, you know, when the kids are all quiet and down to bed, you decide you're going to sit down and you're going to flip the TV on to watch some news. And then all of a sudden you begin to worry about the security of your job as you hear all the economic and political news. And then that makes you go, well, I wonder if I'm going to end up retiring and I'm going to end up living under a bridge in a tent. And it's going to be just in time for the polar vortexes to get really bad, so I'm going to actually have my feet freeze, and then I'm going to have to have them amputated, and then I'll get out of the hospital just in time for the rainy season to come and the floods that are out bigger than normal to wash my tent and all my belongings away. So then, in another attempt to relax and not worry, because nothing you've done throughout the day to stop worrying has been successful, you turn off the TV, you turn your attention to your spouse, and as you try to talk with them, you notice 
that cough that they've had for two weeks is getting worse, not better. So you become concerned not only that you have bone cancer, but that they have lung cancer, even though they've never smoked a day in their life. Which leaves you the few minutes of waking time as you're laying in bed and stirring in bed trying to fall asleep, wondering how your kids are going to do with neither you or your spouse there for them, and will they be able to handle the devastating effects of global warming or the rise of socialism in the U.S., which is what the news was all about that evening. Anyone relate to this, even in a small part? So the 16th century French author Michel de Montaigne wrote, My life has been filled with terrible misfortune, most of which never happened. A study cited by the Huffington Post noted that 85% of what we worry about never happens in life. Of the remaining 15% where stuff does happen, 79% of that stuff is something we look back on positively as a positive challenge that really helped us grow and realize some good stuff in life. That means that 97% of what we worry about is simply punishing ourselves with phantom thoughts exaggerations, misperceptions that are completely needless. And yet worry creates stress, and stress creates problems. There's actually a Princeton study cited in Inc.com that says those who are preoccupied with financial worry on average have a 13-point drop in their IQ, resulting in worse decisions and slower production. Worry raises the risk of heart problems. It Premature aging, dementia, loss of brain mass, maybe correlated to Alzheimer's. It's correlated with depression and marital and relational problems. For, for some of us, worry is something we're really familiar with. We know we struggle with it, and it's clear to us. We worry about our family, about our jobs, about money, about safety, about our world. Others, we believe we're fairly immune to this thing of worry and For most of my life, I put myself in that category and probably still do all too often. But the more I get older and I think maybe possibly become more self-aware, hopefully, I've realized that worry is such a larger part of my life than I would ever have given it credit for. I'm just a pretty good stuffer. I stuff it down. I let the voice of worry stay small. I just live life getting things done. Whatever it is I have to do, I face, I just get it done and, and I try to at least not act like I'm worried, but worry is an unhealthy part of all of our lives. Something that robs us of so much energy and time and contentment and joy. Jesus asks, why why do you worry? We're going to look at one of the two passages where Jesus asks this question, why do you worry? Uh, Before we read the passage, though, in this passage, Jesus actually identifies three general areas in which we worry. You may find yourself having one of them or all of them in your life. I don't know. First, Jesus identifies that we worry about material needs. Jesus says we tend to worry about food and clothing and having enough money. Now, in Jesus' day, when he said that, what worry looked like was very much more basic than it is for us today. People in Jesus' day had a legitimate worry that if there was a drought, they were going to go without food in a famine. They were going to actually struggle to find clothing or heat in the winter. They worried about having enough money to pay for the tools they needed to do their work or pay their taxes. And in that day, if they couldn't pay for those things or pay the debts they owed, there was no bankruptcy, there was no social safety net, there was simply being thrown in debtor's prison or sold into slavery until you paid your debt back. 
There was a very legitimate concern in Jesus' day for basic needs. Although we have poverty in our own backyard, in our world, few of us have to worry about going hungry or not having clothing or not having housing or not having heat. But that nonetheless doesn't cause us to stop worrying about material needs. Today we just define them different. Our needs are not so basic. They are aspirational. What we believe we need in order to be happy and have a life that we want or deserve. So we don't worry about not having food. We worry we won't have enough money to have the kind of food we want. We don't worry about having money. We worry about that we won't have enough money to have the lifestyle we want in retirement. We don't worry about having a house. We worry about whether we can afford the type of house with the type of amenities that we need in order to enjoy life like we think we want to. We don't worry that we won't have money for fun. We worry that we don't have enough money to buy all the cable and streaming packages and go to all the games, the concerts, and the events that we want to go to in life. But here's the thing. Worry doesn't go away just because we have more material things. I've known some quite wealthy people in in my life uh, whose annual charitable giving was more than my entire household income. And yet it's funny, in some of those situations, the percentage of the money they gave of their income was less than most widows that I know who go to church give, even though they're on fixed incomes and give such a smaller amount. I remember sitting with one of them as they told me they were not really rich because they hadn't arrived at the wealth compared to this person over here with their own 737 jet. Where, see, we live in a first world kind of worry where there is a runaway sense of what ought to be enough. And Jesus is asking the question to us. He isn't asking it because he wants us to be paupers. He is asking it to help us be free, help us live every day with a deep sense of gratitude, of peace, of contentment, and joy that enriches our lives. So the second area Jesus talks about that that we worry in is success in our accomplishments. We worry about reaching the goals in our life, whether they're professional in marriage, in our family, in the community, or or financial achievements. Uh, Goals and wanting to succeed and make a difference in life, they are great and noble, right? The problem is the joy of those good accomplishments are so often tainted and overshadowed with worry in our lives. Worry that is often hidden deep down by our drivenness to accomplish the dream. So where Jesus is going to take us today with his question and his comments in this area is to show us the way to have dreams and the way to have goals and to enjoy them more fully and to worry less. So the third area that Jesus alludes to is, is addressed by, by clear implication, even though the area of worry is, was, was not really common in, in his era. It's, it's fairly unique to America, to the Western world, to modern times. And this area of worry centers on becoming who we are made to be and want to be in life. So in today's world, from childhood on, we are told that we can decide who we want to be and where we want to be in life. The possibilities are limitless. Because be anyone you want to be, do anything you want to do. Parents say that, teachers say that, motivational speakers say that, politicians say that, preachers say that. It is the American dream. 
But the reality is, only a few generations ago, that was not the case. At least not to the extent that it is today. You can see that even just by uh, how our last names originated. If, if your last name several centuries ago was Carpenter, your ancestors at one point, maybe even still then, were Carpenters. You were born a carpenter. You became a carpenter. If your last name is Chapman, you became a merchant, a traveling salesman. You, your dad did it, so you did it and were raised to do it. If you were a cooper, you were made to build barrels and casks and drums. The fact that we are born, unlike most generations throughout history, to be and do whatever we want in life is both a blessing And it's also a curse. It's a blessing that we can be free to choose. But it is a huge pressure and a powder keg of worry that you no longer start your life with a defined sense of direction. Instead, you start with a blank slate with nothing and you choose everything. You are free to become whoever you want to be. But every choice you make is judged and compared to others' choices. See, centuries ago, if you were born a farmer, you didn't worry about being compared to somebody who was a banker or a smith or a baker. But today, you are compared against everyone. And worst of all, we are compared against the highlight reels of other people's lives on social media today. See, the problem with living with limitless choices along with the possibility of becoming whatever you want to be as far as the truest and best version of yourself is that it turns life into something akin to walking into this massive 20-acre store that has every choice possible for every kind of thing you'd ever want. It leaves you feeling like, what if I make the wrong choice? What if I pick this and I don't like it? And then I pick this and I still don't like it. I might waste my 20s and 30s and be nowhere near where I want to be, where I'm supposed to be, where I was made to be. What if I don't find myself? What if I somehow miss being who I'm supposed to be in life? So we can easily become paralyzed by the choices. On the other hand, when you get older, you face the same 20-acre store, but you face it with a different feeling. You face it with the feeling of buyer's remorse. You look at your life and you say, things aren't going well and you aren't happy. I made the wrong career choice and now it's too late to change. I I picked the wrong spouse and now I, I, I picked the wrong place to live and now and you've got this buyer's remorse going on and the worry of trying to figure out how to salvage whatever you can salvage out of your life. See, it is this freedom to choose that fuels so many midlife and late life crises in our lives, often causing so much relational and life pain. It's what Barry Schwartz in his book and in his TED Talk describes as the paradox of choice. It's the disappointment that comes from the sense that with so many choices, we should be able to find something perfect. In other words... Since we are told we have all the choices we want in order to be anything we want, if our lives are less than what we hoped for, we worry that we chose the wrong thing and have failed at the primary task we have of life, becoming who we are truly made to be. We have failed at self-actualization is what we face. Now, 
I'm sure there are other ways to describe areas in which we worry, but I think these three areas, if not covering everything, cover most of the worry we face in life. So let's jump into Jesus' question and what he teaches us about why the question, why do you worry? And as we do, we're going to see Jesus' lesson leading us to finding freedom from worry in our lives. So this story is given both by Jesus in Matthew 6 and in Luke 12. We're going to look at Luke 12 today primarily. It says this, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry. So Jesus is direct. He's clear. He's bold. Do not worry. His goal in what he's about to say is to remove worry from our lives. He says, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Jesus highlights the legitimate physical needs we have. He doesn't devalue them. He does it without devaluing them. He points us to life being more than just these needs. He points to our aspirations that we will accomplish something and that we will grow to become something as people. But then Jesus goes on to describe how we can be free of worry. He says, consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, and yet God feeds them. This is not someone saying, don't worry, just abstractly. Jesus is talking to us, inviting us in this to be evidence-based. Faith that helps us not worry is based in what we see, what we observe, what we know, what we experience. And Jesus goes on, he says, and how much more valuable you are than the birds. So what's Jesus doing here? He's saying, do not worry. He then recognizes, yes, you have legitimate needs that are based in life itself. And God is saying, yes, I know those are important things for you, but still, you don't need to worry. Why? Because do you see how I, God, provide for even the birds? God is saying, you've seen me do this year after year, spring after spring, you see it. So look at the history of life around you. And by implication, look at your own life history. Have you had enough to eat? Have you had enough to wear? What evidence does that tell you about the goodness of God in your life? But more than that, Jesus goes even further. He reaffirms, are you not more valuable to God, to me, than these birds, he's saying. Jesus is saying, your needs matter to God. You are valuable. These birds, they're well cared for. How much more am I concerned about the needs of your life? See, this first lesson of finding freedom is tied to a strong underlying current in us that when we worry that, that, that may not be explicit in our heads, but yet, yet it's certainly there, and it's this. We don't always believe God really cares. At least we don't believe that he cares about all these little details over here, right? He may care about us globally, but, but not, not these details. We question how valuable we are to God. And some of that questioning comes because we don't distinguish our wants and our needs. Almost everyone, in this, if you're in this room, is wealthy by world standards, And even though God has blessed us far more than most of the world, we tend to create our own worry that often undermines a life of rich contentment and gratitude by not distinguishing between our needs and our wants. Or am I the only one who does that? I mean, 
Anybody else do that? See, your needs matter to God. You are valuable to God. But there's a further question. Does God really care not just about my needs, but also about my wants? And the answer to that question is also yes. God does really care both about our needs and our wants. He cares so much that all throughout the Bible, when God talks about uh, meeting our needs, He doesn't just talk about it as, as the bare minimum. He's constantly using language like abundance. Abundance. Meeting many of our wants as well, just because He delights in being good and in loving us. In fact, Jesus actually himself uses a metaphor. He uses the metaphor of this basket of gathering grain, saying uh, that God wants to fill our needs, pressed down and shaken together. So how many of you have ever filled a container with flour or grain or some other solid, solid substance and you discovered that if you press it down and you shake it together, you can actually get a ton more in the container than you ever thought at first look? But Jesus goes even further than that. He goes on to not just say he's going to give you a pressed down, shaken together kind of abundance. He says, I'm going to give you a running over kind of abundance. See, Jesus is giving us the invitation not to ignore our needs and our wants, but to look expectantly to God who loves you, to whom you are valuable. The God who wants to meet your needs as well as bring delight in many of your wants in life. Now let's understand something here. Worry and faith, they share the same root principle in common. Both believe that something that hasn't happened is going to happen. Worry believes that something bad that hasn't happened yet is going to happen. Faith believes that something good that hasn't happened yet is going to happen. So faith in the goodness of God Faith in how valuable you are to him neutralizes worry. God cares about our needs and our wants. So trust God's goodness. So let's continue to read what Jesus says and gain more insight into how to find freedom from worry. Jesus goes on, he says, Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Now, how many times have you said, I wish there were more than 24 hours in a day because if there were, I could accomplish so much more? In life, Jesus is speaking to this worry of accomplishment and success. How many times have you thought, if I just did this, if I ate this way or just exercised this way, you could live longer? Jesus is speaking to your worry of self-actualization that you want to live life to the fullest. He's speaking to that worry. And he goes on and says, since you cannot do this very thing, why do you worry about the rest? I mean, consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. They just, they just sit there. They do nothing. They accomplish nothing. Yet I tell you, Jesus says, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom. Matthew says the word first. But seek first His kingdom, and these things will be given to you 
as well. So the second lesson that brings freedom from worry is this seek first his kingdom as an orienting focus of your energy and your entire life. Now, what does that look like? Probably a lot of things, but seeking God's kingdom first in life involves wrestling with this idea of control in our lives. So let me ask you a question. When you face a difficult situation where you have no control, how many of you have the anxiety level, the stress level, the worry level in your life go way up? How many of you have ever said about yourself, I can be a control freak? Now, this room is full of people who are high-performing, successful people in life, in your careers, in life, in your relationships, in your influence. We've all read books on time management and leadership and influence and setting goals and how to achieve goals, and I'm not here to bash any of that today. There's so much wisdom in that. I've read those books. There's so much value and wisdom in them. But as I look back on my life, even the areas where I feel like I created my own destiny through good, hard work, honestly... I realize I had very little control over the situations. I mean, I've, I've had enough work at helping people start new churches, church planting, that, uh, that I've, I've, I've talked with them, I've trained them, I've coached them. They do everything right. They control everything they can in life, and they do it all right. And, and one will be wildly successful, and the other one will fail. I've watched people who were wildly successful in one place go to another place. Same person, similar circumstance. One place succeeds and the other place doesn't live up to expectations. We are not in control in life. But we try to be. We try to be. Yet what we try doesn't work. So the result is we worry because we think we should be able to control things. If you're a parent... You may worry about your kids, especially when you're not with them. Why? Because you think that if you're with them, you can keep them safe, you can protect them. But, but we can't. I mean, the biggest injuries my kids sustained growing up happened when I was there with them. My wife might say there's a correlation to that. I don't know, but I couldn't control things. We worry about communicating things really well so that no one will ever be offended and no one will dislike us. Can I ask you, how's that going? It just isn't possible, is it? It's not bad to try to be loving and kind and and make sure communication is good so that to the greatest extent possible that happens, but it all too often goes beyond thoughtful kindness to stressed out, worrying, fearful attempts to control whether people will like you or not. We try to control all the details in our home life. We try to control the projects at work. We can't control any of that stuff. You can't control the people you work with. You can't control how people will respond. You might have a great idea, but people may not want it. You may have a great idea, but someone else has a similar idea, and they beat you to market first so your business fails. You can't control your promotions or your career path even in your life. This past week, I got a call from one of the most wonderful human beings I've ever been able to work with. He was a good friend from the West Coast, a church planner I helped train and coach. And we were just catching up. He actually recently made a job change, and we were catching up about that, all the transitions in life and family growing up. And we were just reflecting on transitions in our lives in general in a conversation. We both came to the conclusion that we really had no control over any of them. I mean, I remember my first transition from graduate school to full-time ministry, and, and the job came to me. I didn't go seeking after the job. I didn't have any control on that one. The next transition came where I went from that job to consulting on the West Coast. It, it wasn't even something I was looking for. The job just came that way. I had no control over the relational connections that got me that job. It was nothing I did. 
The transition from that job to Quest wasn't something I was looking for, nor did I have connections to make it happen. And for this friend of mine, and looking at all of his transitions he'd had, he said, yep, same thing. I could not have planned this. I had no control over this happening in my life. And neither can you even control your financial portfolio. The market, global politics, global disasters trump your control. When we see ourselves, though, as part of God's kingdom, part of his rule and his authority, we can release our need for control. And we can trust his love and his goodness and his power and simply live each day faithful to seek God and participate with God in whatever we face that day. See, Jesus is speaking to this twisted anxiety in us that tries to foresee pain and tries to control what goes on in our lives, tries to be hyper alert so that we or someone else near us never get hurt again. Worry stems from this protective belief that if I anxiously plan hard enough, well enough, that I could control life. I can add to my life, I can live longer, and life can be better for me. And almost laughing, Jesus asks this question, does your protective, worried planning even add an hour to your life? Maybe these questions will make it come home even more. Does your protective, worried planning make your life more full, joyful, fulfilled, love-filled, or content? Or does your protective, worried planning leave you empty, alone, exhausted, fearful, cut off, holding the world at a distance from the good in life all too often? See, we can't control outcomes, not nearly as much as we believe we can. And that means our definition of success, when it's aimed at a certain measure of accomplishment whether in parenting and work and friendship or in faith, that when we define success by accomplishment, worry is going to be an inevitable part of our lives. It's going to be our need for accomplishment that justifies our need to worry. And we're going to get caught in this trap that robs us of peace and joy in life. But if our definition of success is seeking his kingdom, to simply see where God is at work each day, to join him in what he's doing that day. Then this redefines success for what I think Matt Crossman actually puts it best. He says, did I live life well today following Jesus? Being attentive to what he asked me to do today in each situation I faced. I think that's a great definition of success. See, success not defined by accomplishment, but by how we live moment by moment. Are we seeking God's kingdom and following God's ways or simply trying to control our destiny? Are we living to follow Jesus in doing the right thing and the right reason in the right way and that alone is success? Or only trying to achieve some great accomplishment to make us feel better about ourselves? See, if we're driven by goals and accomplishment, then people, whether that person is a stranger, a friend, a spouse, or your kids, any people who are outside of that goal are going to be interruptions in your day, keeping you from success. 
And so you're going to learn in that process to politely dismiss them as quickly as possible so you can get on to your project. Or sometimes you're not going to be polite at all in the way you dismiss them. But maybe God brought that person and that need into your life today to both teach you a lesson about God's love or also for you to love them and allow God to work through you to love them well and change their life positively. See, when we seek God's kingdom first, we open ourselves to be fully present in the moment and seize the really important things in life, even if it means missing a deadline or not even reaching a goal altogether. We see this definition all throughout Scripture and the characters in the Bible. We see the Apostle Paul, graduated from the leading school of his day, at an early age as a protege of the powerful elite, given opportunity after opportunity to increase his leadership and public recognition. Paul seizes those opportunities with great accomplishments. He's destined to be one of the greatest rulers of Israel of his day, and yet he meets Jesus and he trades all of that for hardship, and poverty, imprisonment, beatings, to create a movement of spreading faith in Jesus across the Roman Empire. Eventually dying, executed as a prisoner, most likely by beheading. And yet we could easily say, even with that in mind, that Paul is still a really successful, I mean, look, he accomplished a lot. He wrote most of the New Testament. He's probably one of the greatest uh, spreaders of Christianity in all of history. Yes, that's all true. But then there's the great Old Testament prophet Jeremiah who accomplished essentially nothing in his lifetime. Almost no one who heard him believed him. In fact, they listened to him oftentimes just to make fun of him. This eccentric, pitiful man for whom everything was doom and gloom. It didn't matter that the doom and gloom that he said God was telling them to try to avoid through repentance was right. It all proved to be true. But even after it all proved to be true, his fellow Jews still grew tired of him and stoned him to death. Even after all that he said came true. Even after he had publicly chosen to stay faithful to them and stay with them in relationship when he had the opportunity to leave and go away where he could have an easier life. And both Paul and Jeremiah are celebrated by God as tremendous successes. The kingdom of God invites us to recognize we are not in control. He is. And the definition of success is not what we accomplish, but we are obedient daily to God in whatever he asks us to do for his kingdom, whether great or small, whether seen or never known by anyone, whether responded to and whether it grows or not by others. Jesus asks us, why do you worry? And he's not asking that question to condemn, to put guilt, because we all worry. We all know that, right? Jesus isn't questioning us, trying to get us to give a right answer. He's trying to start a conversation. He's trying to forge and deepen a relationship with us. And like any relationship that takes a step forward, it, it takes a step forward through honesty and dialogue. Jesus wants us to be honest about where we are at with him. If we're sure that God is, is good, but, but our lives don't really show that by the way we worry and we act, then he wants us to talk about that honestly with him. If we wish we could believe God is unconditionally loving, but we struggle to do so, then we probably should start by just saying that to him. 
I mean, perhaps for some of you, the most honest answer to Jesus' question about worry today is, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about this in my life. I'm not sure who you are. If that's where you are, that's what we need to be willing to tell him. Begin that conversation. So as a way that we can all, I think, respond to God today in this message, I want to have you consider starting a conversation with God around this. Just basically say to him, Father God, I'm anxious about, I worry about, and then just fill in the blank. And then just talk to him about, man, you say you care more about me than the flowers. So how is this worry unnecessary? Would you stand with me as we pray? So Holy Spirit, I just thank you for being here. I thank you. I thank you that you love us so much that you want to take away our worry. That you want us to experience life with a contented confidence, with a peaceful joy. That even when we have accomplishments that, that you bring about in our lives, that we can respond to those with just a pure joy and satisfaction. So Lord, I pray that even as we turn our hearts to worship you in word again, that you would even use the words we're about to sing and say as a way of us offering up our trust and love to you, as a way of experiencing and encountering how much you care about us, and as a way of letting that worry begin to melt out of our lives as we have this conversation with you about who you are, who you are to us, and what our concerns are. So come even in this moment, Holy Spirit, and meet us as we worship. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.